welcome to the All People's Church Sunday podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by lead pastor Robert Herber. For more messages and resources, head to allpeopleschurch.org or download our free All People's app. Good Sunday to you. How you doing? want to introduce you today to our newest staff members. If they could stand up, James and Katie Racine, they're beautiful daughters. And they've uh, recently moved from Minneapolis to, to join us, and they will be leading our first U.S. church plant, which will be to the Twin Cities in the next 18 to 24 months, so we're stoked about that. And they'll also be serving to lead our volunteerism around here, as well as being family section leaders, so make sure you get to know them. We're super thankful for them to be here. Secondly, uh, join us right after the service. Steph and I would love to meet you at our Welcome to the Family Lunch. It's free. Can't beat a free lunch. And it's a way to get to know us more and for us to get to know you and let you know how you can join this family and really utilize your gifts for the kingdom of God. And we would love to see you there right after this service back in this room. We'll clear out the room and then bring everyone back in. So, you know, one of the things I like least in life is math. And you know what, as they're actually moving out with their kids, I don't see any other kids, but if there are any children, I would encourage you today to have them in the children's rooms. This is a a much more mature topic as we discuss math. No, Uh, as we, as we, we'll we'll be unpacking some some deep issues, so would encourage you with that. Uh, I don't like math. Any math people in here? Okay, you're awesome. We need you, right? I just don't understand you. And uh, my, my brain doesn't work like your brain works. My, I'm an artist, and so the thought that there's only one answer to a question, like, I don't get it. It, it totally annoys me. And then the teacher has one way for me to get there, and she wants to see my work. Like, I feel so boxed in. You know, and that's just rough. And so here's the, here's the cruel reality of this hard world we live in is that you finally graduate from school and you think you're done with math forever and then you have kids and they bring math back into your home. And so here, here's how it goes because I was duped by this. I, I, I'm at home and my, my sweet daughter comes and says, Daddy, can you help me with my homework? And I'm like, yes, darling, of course I can help you with your homework. You know, I'm thinking this is my moment as the knight in shining armor for my daughter. And I say, what is it? And she pulls out a math assignment. And I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, we're not going there. Like, I know this trick to make me feel stupid. That is not gonna happen. You go to your mother. Right, and so I send, fortunately, Steph is a lot better at math than I am, but here's the deal. Uh, My dislike of math got me in trouble because in high school, I was taking geometry, speaking of feeling boxed in. Uh, I'm, I'm taking geometry, and I just was fed up, and so I decided to just stop doing my homework. Right? It, 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 is never, it never works out when we stop doing our responsibilities, right? And so I decided to stop doing my homework, and then we get to test time, and so <clears throat> I, I panic because I do not know how, how to do this. And I bomb my first test, and I'm just thinking, this is not good because I'm going to get a talking to from my parents, and I'm going to get, you know, if this keeps happening, I'm going to get taken out of extracurricular activities, which is the main reason we go to school, right? And so... 
So anyway, uh, you'd think I learned my lesson, but instead I just keep going with not doing my homework. I come to the next test and I am freaking out. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you like your whole body goes hot and your heart's pounding. And I kind of just look up like, what am I doing? And I look and next to me is the smartest girl in class. Her name is Zhang Yang. She was this amazing foreign exchange student from China, sweet girl. And so I look at her test and I start taking you know, her answers. And here's the thing, I became friends with Zhang and soon she was giving me her homework to copy. So I start copying her homework and I'm, I'm convicted, but then I get to the next test and I'm moved. And now I can't, I can't just look over the side. I'm behind Zhang, and I, I'm feeling I'm going to fail this test. So I actually tap her, and I'm like, Zhang, I need help. She takes my test. We trade papers, and she does my test for me. I did really good on that test. Uh, but it was not me. So here's the deal. The longer I cheated, the less convicted I got. And then it started spilling into other classes that I didn't need to cheat in, that I was good at. So it culminates in me cheating in psychology, which, crazy enough, ends up one of my majors in college. So, but I, by then, I just stopped doing my homework. So I'm in Mr. Cromwell's psychology class and doing a test. He leaves the class, and I immediately start looking over at a smart person's paper. I strategically sat next to smart people, and I'm... I'm, I'm looking and copying, and magically in that moment, Cromwell steps back in the door and goes, Robert, are you cheating in front of the whole class? And I went, no, of course not, Mr. Cromwell. And I realized in that moment, not only am I cheating, I am lying in front of 25 other students, and I'm known as the Christian in my school. And he didn't buy it, and he said, Robert, you're going to the principal's office. And I remember just taking that walk of shame and feeling sick at my stomach, and my mind spinning. And for the next month, I'd go through this really humiliating experience of detention after school, this long process of doing all this extra work for Mr. Cromwell. And you know, that really marked me, that experience, because I never wanted to get in that downward spiral of sin again. And that's what we were going to talk about today as we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 11. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. We're talking about the story of David and Bathsheba. And what I find is that as Christians, most of the time, our sin struggle doesn't start by just heading headlong, diving into immorality, but it starts with a slippery slope. And my first point today is this, the first step into lust We're talking about the lie of lust today. The first step into lust is when we stop doing what we should be doing. Let's start 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. Now remember, David is the king and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. 
You see, this is what I find is the slippery slope into sin and into lust is when we stop doing what we should be doing. I want to show you four aspects of life that we need to be attuned to, to walk in all that God's called us to walk in that David neglected and began his downward spiral into sin. The first one is you need to know your season. You need to know your season. The Bible says in the spring at the time. You see, it was the spring, and that was the specific time that kings would go off to war. Do you know your season that you're in? You know, we were much more attuned to seasons when the primary job and culture was an agrarian society. There's a time to plant. There's a time to reap. But nowadays in our 24-7, frantically moving, media-infested culture, you know, time just kind of bleeds together. I want you to know, it's important to know what season you're in. So for us, example, for example, as a staff of this church, we know that Christmas time is going to be a busy season. We do numerous outreaches and numerous activities to bring people into the kingdom, and that's a good busyness. But I understand that after that, I'm going to need a time of rest. I understand for us as a staff that summer is a time of a slower pace. And I understand in a time that has a slower pace, I need to have more disciplines in my life so I don't get apathetic or lazy. Do you know the season you're in? If you're a mom with young children, it's a, a child-rearing season. And we want to, to not detest or, or be bitter at our season, but instead embrace it knowing that seasons change. How do you know your season? One of the things that you can do is ask a person that mentors you. That's why we're so into discipleship is someone that's gone a little further in their life can speak back. And it's another reason why I always take personal retreats before each season to say, God, what season am I in and what are you calling me to in this season? See, another thing we need to know is our role. It says, when kings go off, off to war. If you were a king, you went to war. That's what you did, right? What role has God called you to right now? If you're a student, your role is to study. Your role is to do your homework. Don't be like I was. Your role is to do that. And if David would have been faithful to his role, he wouldn't have got in this situation in the first place. He would have been at battle with his people fighting off the enemies of his country. But instead, he wasn't faithful to that. The Bible says this in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your human masters. You say, well, I don't like my role right now. Well, the way to, to, to move out of that role is to actually be faithful in that role. Pass the test and you get promoted to the next role. Don't keep having to take the same test over and over and over again. The next aspect of life to be attuned to is your duties. It says, David sent Joab out with the king's men. You see, in the body of Christ, the crazy thing is there's always someone that we could find to do our duties. And so you can shuck your responsibility. But you know what? The person you're harming most is yourself. Because when you do what you're called to do, God's anointing comes on you and his favor comes on you. And then you see his kingdom advance. So, so David delegated it to someone else, and it gets him in trouble. Lastly, we need to be attuned to our accountability partners. Here's what the scripture says. It says the whole Israelite army was out. All of David's boys, 
All his homies were gone. And we're not supposed to walk this life in the kingdom on our own. There are no lone ranger Christians. Whenever I meet someone that says, you know, me and God, we just kind of have our own relationship. I'm not part of a church. I'm not part of a community. I think you don't have a relationship with God like he wants you to have. There's no lone ranger Christians. Even lone ranger had Tonto, right? So we walk with accountability. And because David was not with his boys, no one called him when he started drifting. And so that's what brings us to verse 2. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw. So here's the problem. And, and this is detected as we continue to study the original language of this scripture. The word for evening is interesting because sometimes we just think evening is night. But that's not true in the case of the Hebrew language. The word in Hebrew is the word Arab which means evening or sunset. So think about this. David is laying around on his bed at sunset, right? 5.30, 6 p.m., he's just lounging around on the bed. And so, so listen to this. This will be helpful from this commentary. It says this, ancient Hebrew days began at sunrise, and they still do. Hebrew evening does not mean night. The word for night actually is layil, which means dark. So this wasn't dark time. This was sunset time. Ancient Hebrew day means working and attaching mightily, i.e. producing vigorously. Ancient Hebrew night means no work, no exertion. Night is not part of the ancient Hebrew day. Ancient Hebrew evening means looking primarily home and heading home. So let me give you a general rule of thumb because you might not have been given this, or this might not have been modeled to you in your family growing up as times have changed. Do you know that in the day, it's good to work? You were created to work. Work is not bad. Look at your neighbor and say, work. And you got to do it with that smile, not me, not like work, but you go work because God created you to make a contribution to this earth to extend his kingdom. And, and to bring the betterment of humanity through your hands. You know that work is not a product of the fall. Some people think, well, Adam and Eve, they were just laying around in the garden, swinging on hammocks. She was feeding him grapes. He was tossing her apples. You know, and, and they just had nothing to do. No, the Bible said God put them in the garden to work. That was before. That's Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man. Do you know that when you put your hands to the work you were created to, you'll find tremendous fulfillment? But see, this is what I find both in this, in this generation, but specifically in Southern California, is I'll hear people say, oh, I got the best job. I only have to work for two hours a day. Whoa, that's not what the Bible encourages us to do. It's, so many people choose their job because what makes the most amount of money? What's the job that's going to make me the most famous? And what's the easiest thing? And I'll tell you, that's why so many people are unfulfilled in their work. If you don't like your work, perhaps it's because you're doing the wrong thing. Because God programmed you. He hardwired you. That's why some of you guys love math. I don't get it. But I'm so thankful. Because I'd be dead broke if we didn't have accountants, right? And bankers, they were like, oh, 1, 17, 29. You know, think about it. If people didn't know how to count, we would be toast, Right? So God has created different ones to do significant work. Now, here's what the Bible says. After you work, after day, which means to work, 
Then you go to evening. And you see what that word meant? To head home. One of the reasons we get in trouble in life is we don't follow the seasons. And so people after work, they go out and sow all kinds of things that aren't what God intended in the Hebrew word is we go back and focus on our home. And who is a home? Home is your people. If you're married, go home and invest in your spouse. If you have children, go home and pour into your children. If you're single, go and invest in your family, the the roommates and the friends that you live with. This is what God has called us to do, to have a healthy life. And then at night, what do you do? It says no work. So we get us all confused and, and we burn the midnight oils and then we get all discombobulated and we wonder why we're so burned out and we're so frazzled. It's because we're not following the seasons of the day. And so if you work hard and then you focus in on your relationships and you put your head on the pillow at night and boom, you're out, you conk out. Doesn't that feel good? That feels so good when you know you've, you, you, you've left it out on the field and you come home and crash, but that's not what David did. So David is laying around in the wrong time of day and then it says he got up from his bed. Why? Because he's not sleepy. Because he hasn't been doing any work. He's like, hey, I'm the king now. I do what I want. Right? I just hang out. So he gets up from his bed and starts wandering around. It says he walks around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw. Here's the second step into lust. It's wandering eyes. It's wandering eyes. We, we think, oh, you know, I'm just gonna kind of look at whatever. I'm a little bored right now. I'm a little, you know, restless. Let me just look. I, I was talking to a, a man recently that came in to share with me some, some deep things on his heart, and I actually asked him permission to share his story with you. He said, it wasn't that I was actually getting online and typing in pornographic topics to look at. He goes, I was just searching for random things on the internet, but it would always somehow lead me into pornography. You know that we know when our eyes start wandering? We know when our eyes start wandering. That's why Job says in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a young woman. You've gotta be purposeful with your eyes. Let me just tell you, we live in a world invaded with sensuality, invaded with darkness. You can just be driving down the road listening to your hill song, and all of a sudden, boom, there is a billboard trying to steal your purity from you. And you know what you need to do? You need to look away. You need to look away. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says the eye is the lamp of the body. Matthew 6, 22. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. I was speaking at my kid's chapel this week, and I was preaching on this verse, and I held up a bucket, and I said, can you see in there? And they couldn't, because it was dark inside. And I turned on my iPhone flashlight, and I went, now look, and it was all bright inside. Right? And I said, that's what your eyes do. When you feast on Jesus, when you're pouring the word in, it's bringing light to your body. Now, on the contrary, the Bible says this, but when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep the darkness. So I showed the kids this. I, I poured a glass of water and said, guys, what if this was your life? This is you right here. And the kids started yelling, drink it, drink it, drink it. And I went, pure. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for you, and he cleansed you. And so this represents you. When you give your life to Jesus, you're clean. You're, you're, you're this clear little water. But here, all of a sudden, you think, you know what? I can look at that just little bit of darkness. No big deal. That's not gonna really affect me. And so you take just one little drop. 
Beep. Okay, and you think, yo, see, see, that didn't affect me at all. But look at this. As you live your life, one drop of darkness is completely black. And the kids started yelling, drink it, drink it, drink it. And I was like, no, because it's darkness. One bit of darkness. We think, you know, that's just going to, that's not going to really affect me. That's just one little aspect hidden in my life when I'm gazing upon this thing. No, it contaminates everything. So it says this, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. See, the third step to lust is not looking away when you see something inappropriate. So David walks on the roof, he sees a woman, but all of a sudden it says, then he sees that she's really beautiful. Why? Because he didn't go, woo, naked lady, not my wife, look away. No, he goes, whoa, and starts checking her out and starts feasting on that with his eyes. Now, listen to this. Um, it is... It is ingrained in a man to want to look at a naked woman's body. Hey, this is church. Just telling you the truth. Okay? And you're like, what do I do with this right now? <laughs> Can I just tell you, God put that desire in man? Why? Because it's God put this desire for a man to stare and be captivated by the beauty of his wife. And that actually is going to draw him to her. Look at this. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And all God's people blushed. <laughs> right there. Right there. Whoa! Whoa, no, God put that desire for a man to look on his naked wife, and, and, and that actually helps him head home after work at the end of the day, right? That, that, that brings a husband and wife together, so that is good. It's just bad when he's looking at someone that does not belong to him, right? Because a man's temptation is to look upon things that are not his, right? Now watch, I, I've, been, I've been really hard on David this whole time, but let me just call out Bathsheba for a second. Here's a, a simple fact. If I can see you, then you can see me, right? Okay, so let, let me just say this way. Um, I know modest people, and modest people think about where they bathe, Okay, like that's why there's shower curtains, right? That's why there are doors on bathrooms. Okay, so it doesn't say like David went and climbed up a ladder and like peeked into her window. It says like David's just out on the roof and there's a woman. And I guarantee you, if he could see her, then she's probably like could see him up there. So I, I, I just wonder if Bathsheba wasn't being modest, I wonder if, if, if she wasn't, wasn't thinking about this. And so here, just as a man can have a temptation to look, here, here's what I know. It's right for a woman to want her husband to be attracted to her, right? That's, that's right, right? Right. And it's right for a woman to want her husband to look at her, right? That's good. That, that, that's healthy in marriage. But a temptation for a woman 
could be I want other people to look at me because that feeds my, my self-image and, and it makes me feel desirable. And, and now, now listen to me. There's a movement right now that I believe is right where women are speaking out and saying it's no longer okay to be harassed or molested or, or raped and to be told I have to be quiet. And so listen, there is nothing a woman, even if a woman's dressed immodestly, even if a woman's in the wrong place, even if a woman's talking wrong, it's not ever right for a man to harass her or for a man to do anything to her. She does not deserve that, right? So that is never, it's never appropriate, okay? So let's just, boom, close that right there. As a man with a daughter, as a father, I want, however, to teach my daughter how to live in a modest way to project her values and to be, an, to be a bright, shining light in her generation and to also project it to guys who might want something, some cheap thrill to understand, you know what, that girl, that's not the kind of girl she is. Listen, listen to what... Listen to what 1 Timothy 2 says. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. So this is, it's about modesty, decency, propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, anything bad could happen to anyone. Okay, so that, that just can happen. But I want to, to the best I can, I want to safeguard my precious daughter and I want to safeguard you women in the church by saying it matters how you dress. It matters what bathing suit you wear. It matters where you go and to project the kind of morals and the godly woman you are. And so we call people into that. Both men saying, men, cover your eyes, look away, and women walk in modesty and decency and propriety, and we'll all do better. And we'll impact this generation with the, the light right, and the purity of God instead of taking part in the cesspool that's just dragging people down. Amen? Let's move on. So verse three, David sent someone to find out about her. And look at this. This is where David is deliberately choosing sin. The last step in lust is the deliberate choice to gratify your cravings. The, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So Eliam in the Hebrew, Eliam means people of God. Okay, so David's understanding, there's a warning just in, in this message he gets. Can I just tell you, God's always checking you. When you're about to walk into sin, there's conviction. God's always throwing out warning signs, and we just need to heed those and not push past them. Then he said, that's the wife. Red alert, this is a wife of someone, of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. He's a friend. So not only is David, our lust not only makes us sin against the people of God, but it hurts our friends. And then it says that she was in her time of cleansing after her monthly cycle. So not only is that, it's against God. Like this was in the law. Like don't touch a woman and have sexual relations in this time. So how can this man of God, David, who was such a worshiper and doing God's business, fall into this? It's because lust has these consequences in our life. Number one, it clouds our judgment. 
When we give into lust, it starts clouding our judgment. Remember this cup of water? We think it's just gonna be one little dot. No, it clouds everything. I'm talking to this, this guy who was sharing his heart with me and he said, you know, as I gave myself into lust, it's like my thinking got confused and I started making bad decisions. You know, lust in one area can affect all kinds of decisions. I watch it affect people financially. I watch it affect people emotionally. I watch it affect people relationally because it clouds our judgment, and this was clouding David's judgment, but here's another thing. The second thing is lust negatively affects us physiologically. So do you know that when you're gazing upon a naked body or you're gaining a, upon a pornographic image, that there's actually a, a, a release in your mind of dopamine? And so it's this, it's this uh, stimulant in your, in your mind that's going off, and it makes you want more and more and more. But the problem is pornography or these images have a diminishing effect on you. So you have to have more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper to have the same stimulus going on. And that's why people start with this swimsuit issue and end up in all kinds of destruction and demonic and warped and perverted things because they just need more and more and more. And it also releases a neuron that makes you want and need a release and so how does David end up going from God worshiper to watch what happens next? This is crazy. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. David is trying, he, he realizes Bathsheba's pregnant, so he's like, I've got to cover this up. Can I just tell you that lust inevitably leads to deception? If you start walking in lust, you have to start covering up things. And so it leads to a double life. That's why lust, it just starts affecting every area of your life. So now he's got this plan to make it look like Uriah slept with his wife and she's pregnant with his baby. Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? Wow, convicting. As surely as the Lord lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that next day. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. This is crazy. Lust opens up the door for other sins. David understood the law of God. Do not be drunk on wine. This leads to debauchery. He understood that wine is not for kings, but, and yet he's making someone drunk? Why? Because it's just a slippery slope, and it used to start spiraling out of control. But watch this. This is, this is heartbreaking. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab has the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and found, found, uh, fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. You see, a man of God just go from neglecting his responsibilities to now having wandering eyes to now focusing in on something he shouldn't be looking at 
to then purposely going after it, to covering a sin, to now planning a murder, and to now going through with it. You know, lust doesn't just lead us into sin, but lust has an inextricable leak, link to violence. Now, why do I say that? Because the devil is the author of lust. And the Bible says that the thief comes to steal, but it doesn't stop there. Lust is stealing. Lust is taking something that's not yours. You're looking upon, you're taking something, you're taking purity, you're taking something that's not yours, but it says to steal, to kill, and destroy. Ultimately, the enemy wants to bring death and destruction. And that's why pornography gets darker and darker and darker. And that's why people often that create the most heinous crimes are ones that started with petty porn. There's an inextricable link between the two. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. He just killed someone, and now he's saying, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Not only did he kill someone, but now he doesn't even seem regretful. And he goes even further. He, he takes this woman that he stole and makes, him, makes her his wife. How do you get there? How do you go from... From, from being here just winning the Lord's battles all the way down here with a, a conscience that, that seems to, to not even be sensitive anymore. Can I just tell you, lust sears our conscience. When you give into lust time and time again, you finally sear your conscience. The more you choose sin, the less and less you're going to be sensitive to the Lord and the less and less you're going to hear him until you're finally desensitized and you'll do all kinds of crazy things you would have never dreamed of. And so what are we going to see? And I'm, I'm having to land the plane today, and, and we'll come in and, and, and start heading up next week. But we're going to see the next 10 months of David's life. We're going to get to chapter 12. And the next 10 months of David's life, you don't hear of any fellowship with God. You don't hear of him hearing from God. You hear of, of nothing positive happening. He ends up almost spiritually dead because of this. But can I just tell you that you don't have to be there? And in fact, we're going to see God come and bail David out of this. Can I tell you that God's a God of redemption? You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. And no matter how deep you've been into lust or pornography or adultery or sexual addiction, his power is stronger and he can set you free. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will come in you when you bow your knee to him and you make him your savior and your Lord. Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins, but he doesn't just leave you there. He puts his Holy Spirit in you to empower you to give you freedom. And so everyone can be set free. And I speak as a person who's been set free. So many people think, oh, all guys, they're just in sexual sin. Can I just tell you, I used to be. But I've been in freedom for 20 years. Not because I'm so strong, but because of the power of the strong one living within me. And you can be set free too. In fact, I walk with numerous guys who are walking in freedom. And it's not because they have such strong muscles or strong flesh. It's because they've relinquished their rights and let the Lord fill them with the Holy Spirit that empowers them to walk in a pure way. Why don't we stand up?
Your birthright is freedom. And there is power to set you free. And we'll talk more about that next week. But just close your eyes with me because I want to lead you in a prayer. If you have never given your life to Jesus, you can't be free because you don't have the strength in yourself. Our flesh leads us towards sin. But I also find that there are many Christians that they pray a prayer of salvation, but they've never made Jesus the Lord of their life. They've never said, Jesus, you are my Lord. And you know if that's you. You know if you control your own life or if Jesus is the leader of your life and you do what he says. And for day, today is a day to repent and to turn from your old ways. Some of you prayed a prayer, Lord, save me from hell. But you've never said, I repent of my old ways and I'm actually turning and walking following Jesus as my Lord. If that's you today, I wanna pray with you to commit your life to the Lordship of Jesus. For others that don't know if they're going to heaven when they die, I wanna pray a prayer with you that you'd know you have forgiveness. And for some of you that have walked far away from God, it's time to come back today. If you need to come back to him, just pray with me today if one of those is you. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I turn from my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. I receive your gift of the Holy Spirit. Come and fill me, Holy Spirit. Help me to follow after you. All over this room, if you're praying that prayer, I want everyone eye closed, but I want to pray for you. You say, Robert, I'm praying that prayer with you right now. Just look up at me and wave. I can embarrass you. Just wave at me. Thank you. Who else? Just wave at me. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Who else? Just wave at me. All over this room. Thank you. See you. Thank you. See you. Anyone else? Just wave at me. All over this room. Thank you. Awesome. Lord, we thank you for all these that are just humbly saying, I'm coming to you. And Lord, we celebrate that today is a day of freedom. Today is the day the Holy Spirit's coming in their life. And they're going to have you forevermore. They'll never walk alone again. We celebrate salvation. We celebrate lordship. We celebrate freedom. Leaders, just come.